Welcome back, everyone. This is Ryan Selkis. You're listening to another episode of Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I discuss key industry trends with crypto's top investors, builders, and thinkers. Just a reminder, Masari is much more than a podcast company. So if you're an industry professional or crypto investor, head over to masari.io and check out Masari Pro, our crypto toolkit that offers best-in-class research, advanced screening, and charting tools to keep you ahead of the investing curve, plus a new enterprise alerts tool. We're also hosting the industry's largest virtual event, the Mainnet, this June 1st through 3rd, with over 50 hours of programming, 100 confirmed speakers, and virtual networking that's so seamless, you'll feel like you're actually there. 50% of the profits are heading to COVID relief, so go reserve your spot today at mainnet.com. Dot events. That's masari.io for pro research and tools and mainnet.events for the best virtual event you'll attend this year. With that, strap in for another episode. Going to be a good one. This episode of the podcast brought to you by Luca. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only time-tested crypto tax software. Luca has listened to your feedback and now lets you calculate capital gains and losses, seeing the results using three different accounting methods side-by-side, all for free. You only pay if you want to see their detailed tax reports and submit your forms using their software. Luca supports unlimited transaction downloads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps you optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refunds or minimize how much you have to pay. Luca wants to help Masari's Unqualified Opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code MasariTax and you'll get a discount. Much more importantly, you'll do your taxes correctly and stay out of jail. Download LucaTax at Luca with two K's, tax.com, and save money this tax season. This episode is brought to you by Bitstamp, the original crypto exchange. 2011 is a long time. This is their third Bitcoin halving, and Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors all along the way. 4 million customers, including top financial institutions worldwide, use Bitstamp. Check them out because they've got some serious professional-grade trading technology, including a matching engine from NASDAQ, some of the best APIs in the industry, and TradeView, their advanced trading interface includes live charting and deep analytical tools that are available on web and mobile. Bitstamp also delivers unmatched customer service, no robots, real live people around the clock via phone, email, and social media if you have issues, but you won't. Join over 4 million traders, download the Bitstamp app from the App Store and Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to get started. That's bitstamp.net slash pro, and they're hooking you up with a discount for Masari Pro as well using promo code Bitstamp. This episode of the podcast brought to you by Crypto.com. We know times are tough. That's why Crypto.com is introducing three different measures to help its community with their new Crypto.com app and credit card. First, they're waiving the 3.5% credit card fee on all crypto purchases in the next three months. They're also offering 10% back when you use the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. And as always, you can buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app for merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more with 20% back on food and additional 10% back on groceries. So download the Crypto.com app today. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with for exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space. Check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiot. Have another special guest today right around the having. I know everybody wants to talk about mining and whether there might be any repercussions around having on the Bitcoin mining market. There are a lot of different factors at play in the mining market right now between the coronavirus, having the state of the international energy markets. There's a whole lot that we can discuss, and I'm excited to do so with today's guest, Alex Legal, who is the 
co-founder and CEO of Layer One Technologies. Um, one of the most exciting uh, Bitcoin mining data center uh, companies that's uh, been doing you know, quite a bit of innovative design, particularly in uh, the U.S. markets. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about the domestic uh, scene with Bitcoin mining in the U.S., um, some of the unique approaches that Layer One is taking to uh, decentralize the Bitcoin mining market and some of the broader trends that they're seeing in the market around this particular halving. So, you know, Alex, before we, we go deep into uh, Layer One, let's talk a little bit about your background and how we got to this point. Um, because if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Layer One was a concept that you kind of triangulated on after you'd raised some money. And, and you were thinking about doing protocol M&A at one point, right? Like distressed uh, asset investing first yeah. and, then, and then kind of came into the Bitcoin market. Yeah, uh, yeah, great point, Ryan. I think, I think that idea is still very interesting. And mm -hmm. the original idea behind Layer One Capital, which is what I founded in October 2018, was, okay, so you have public market liquidity for these cryptocurrency uh, assets, and then you also have open source technology. So effectively, as an investor, uh, you have an unprecedented opportunity set because you can take a position in a given asset and then actually deploy engineering resources towards improving the fundamental value and then hopefully also the monetary value of those assets. Right? You don't have to be a Carl Icahn or Warren Buffett and have hundreds of billions of dollars on your balance sheet and then uh, really only make a difference if you can uh, sort of litigate yourself to a board seat, but instead... Um, you basically have infinite leverage, quote unquote, in terms of making a difference because, well, you can go in and out of position without any other sort of thresholds that impair uh, your ability to uh, initiate a change on the protocol level. And uh, basically, the complexity with layer one was, at the end of the day, the investable universe. Um, I don't like the term maximalist, but I, at the end of the day, I just think Bitcoin is the only thing that kind of matters. Everything else for me is sort of noise. Um, and then I still think, I still think Grin is very interesting. Um, we still hold a position um, more or less that's on autopilot because um, I got to meet who is now my co-founder for layer one technologies and layer one technologies being sort of the next evolution of layer one uh, called Yakov Dolich, who founded a company called Genesis Mining. Uh, Genesis Mining is the biggest cryptocurrency cloud mining company in the world. Um, you know, they've built hundreds of megawatts of facilities all over the world. He's been involved since 2012. Um, we really hit it off and then started ideating on his experience uh, in the mining sector and where the industry was over the last seven years since, uh, since its nascence and um, came to the conclusion, frankly, the biggest idea of them all is sort of reinventing Bitcoin mining from first principles, because the funny thing about mining, and I'm sure you have that in a lot of conversations is people go like, I'll oh, buy it. Mining is super commoditized. There's no edge. Um, effectively, it's like a race to the bottom. Um, so basically we started sort of going through, okay, what does it mean to have full control over every cost and profit lever? What does it mean to think about, okay, all that matters. What previously was, it was a game of CapEx. Do you have the fastest chips and can you get them in the fastest amount of time? That being commoditized, it's all about, do you have the cheapest electricity at scale and the most efficient cooling infrastructure to take advantage of it? And then typically like the typical sort of like founding experience is you kind of do the numbers, they check out, you do the numbers a little bit more, they still check out. Um, and then eventually at some point just realize, Hey, look, like, you know, I think layer one capital in and of itself is a very interesting idea intellectually and also economically. I think it's going to pan out. If you want to build a hundred billion plus dollar company, 
Bitcoin mining and the approach that we're doing right now is the way to go. And mm -hmm. every day I'm more convinced. Um, it's It's been a lot of work and a lot of days stressful, um, but I'm incredibly excited about what we're doing. Um, how, how did you first get into the industry? So what's your background? Because uh, you look at the Bitcoin mining market and I see something very highly specialized and uh, mm -hmm. interesting for someone to just kind of come in cold to that market. Did you have yeah. background in, in uh, you know, industrial uh, facilities or, or, or no. how, how, how did, how did you um, kind of assemble the team? And, and, and so, so um, I, yeah, so uh, I graduated from Stanford in 2016 with a bachelor's in double degree in math and philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say I'd always had the ambition to be an entrepreneur. Um, I was born and raised in, in Munich, Germany, and then came to the States for college. Uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Classes isn't sort of my top priority. So uh, I really started uh, thinking about, okay, where sort of uh, opportunity to actually create alpha and, and build businesses. So my sophomore year, I started a quant fund trading volatility, uh, derivatives, options, and, and so forth, which is actually ended up being institutionally funded. But as you know, sort of in the typical finance uh, industry, at the end of the day, it's too mature. You're not able to compete if you really scale up. Okay, what would it be like to be a $100 million business, a billion dollar business, and so forth? Um, sort of, there's not enough convexity as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, the next step was I worked after college, I worked at the Stanford Management Company, which is the endowment fund um, at Stanford. And um, there I worked on the special investments desk. Basically, that was kind of their global macro desk, and uh, which does a little bit of derivatives and sort of like idiosyncratic investments. And uh, I ended up covering semiconductors and uh, which kind of brought me full circle because I still got first got introduced to Bitcoin in late 2012 with some buddies uh, in college. And then, I mean, classic sort of arbitrage play. You can just get electricity for free. So might as well just like hook up some miners, make some Bitcoin. Obviously it's, you know, a ridiculously tiny amount <laughs> in terms of size, power, draw, and so forth in comparison to mm -hmm. what we do now. But, um, you know, at, in, in 2016, then when I worked at, uh, after Stanford and so forth, I was really able to uh, go full circle in, in terms of, okay, what does sort of uh, semiconductor chip design actually look like from a sort of supply chain basis? Um, what are the development cycles like? How does it change the economics around should you purchase third-party suppliers from, for example, Bitmain or Wattsminer and so forth, or should you actually put you know, your money where your mouth is and invest that cash yourself and, and own that uh, element of your supply chain? And then um, immediately after SMC, I, I, I did something uh, different, which is interestingly sort of the diametric opposite of sort of what Bitcoin was. And it kind of was sort of the darkness that led me into the light. So I actually worked I started a startup that built an AI fraud detection platform for the Mexican IRS. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that kind of made me realize how incredibly inefficient governments, institutions, the entire sort of like panopticon of uh, financial tracking and so forth. So I, I became very uh, frustrated by sort of the internal political generations about how the system actually sort of uh, manifested itself in the day-to-day -day lives and so forth. And then eventually um, it came down to, I always was very interested in Bitcoin, always very interested in sort of the concept of a non-sovereign currency in whatever sort of manifestation. 
And then eventually it was just a function of timing and just ideating on what is the right opportunity. And so layer one capital was sort of the first step um, where, you know, I had some, I had some interesting backers with good sort of, uh, sort of, you know, branding. Um, I think it had a novel approach that hadn't been tested yet. Um, but that really in hindsight was sort of the step from zero to one and then really understanding, okay, Hey, you know, all of a sudden you can build a Bitcoin mining business, which isn't mining like people think it is. It's really actually an energy business on which you can build a financial institution, right? That's kind of the opportunity. We can go about that uh, in detail later. And, you know, fundamentally you want to optimize for expected value and it's, it's the maximum expected value that we think we can achieve. Um, so at this point, um, uh, very excited about the opportunity. Let's talk about the, uh, the, the guts of the business. Um, the, the arbitrage play at this point is to build facilities in areas where there is low or, or maybe even negative energy costs, given the glut in supply now, um, and taking uh, some of that energy, uh, repurposing it in, in, into you know, kind of useful uh, proof of work. Um, power that is, you know, ultimately going to be run in these, you know, high efficiency industrial warehouses. So far, so good. Um, but that can apply to Iceland. That can apply to, um, you know, regions in, in China where where electricity is is basically negligible in cost, and they might be much closer to the supply of of kind of first, uh, you know, best in class, uh, next generation miners that um, that are coming to market. So, you know, walk through the process of, of kind of spinning up the first of these, um, you know, massive warehouses and how you're thinking about uh, geographic uh, diversification uh, and kind of what the, what the economics for a basic warehouse might look like as you get it spun up. Yeah. So I have to correct two premises of your, mm-hmm. of your case here. The first being... Um, Iceland, China, and so forth actually by far do not have free electricity, um, if at all, the, the contrary. Um, Iceland is extremely expensive, or Canada, or you know, upstate New York, or if you want to be in elsewhere in Scandinavia and so forth. Um, China as well, maximum maybe like three, four cents per kilowatt hour in the wet season. So it's actually not that cheap. Um, it's, uh, I think sort of people just kind of circulate about that idea that energy in China is free. Um, but you know, that's not the case. The second, the second premise is we don't build warehouses. We don't build air cooled machines or anything like that. Um, so basically, uh, our business is convert electricity to money at the end of the day. That's how, how it boils down. So what does that mean really is all you want to optimize for is, can I get the cheapest electricity at scale and can I, uh, have the most efficient cooling infrastructure in order to actually take advantage of that electricity that is so Mm -hmm. cheap. Um, so for that purpose, what we're building is fully integrated liquid cooled, uh, data center containers, 40 by 20 feet big, right? The outer sort of uh, shell is very similar to just a typical shipping container, which makes it convenient because it has a specific codification, you know, which makes logistics, uh, trivial and so forth. And, uh, with these containers, we're, uh, effectively, um, independent of any type of air temperature and so forth, right? In Texas, it can be 100, 110 degrees Fahrenheit in the summertime. I think right now, it's uh, as of today, it's going to probably be like 90 or 100 degrees, right? Insanely hot. And you cannot survive in such a setting if you just have the typical warehouse air-cooled 
facilities, you know, the shoebox miners, this size. Um, instead, um, what we have developed in over three to four years, so this IP was developed under my partner Yakov and our current CTO and flew into, flowed into layer one and it's also uh, patent protected now is, uh, or patent pending, apologies, um, is uh, this immersed liquid cooling technology that uh, also has the capability to host multiple megawatts per container um, so that we effectively get strong economies of scale on the CapEx side um, because we can overclock our chips. We need to effectively spend only 50 cents for where every other miner spends a full dollar in facility infrastructure. Um, we have basically uh, net nearly close to zero electricity costs uh, because of that. And then thirdly, the very important thing is why do I call this an energy business? Why do I sometimes say we're sort of in the energy storage uh, industry? Well, um, that's because um, we can effectively act as a grid stabilizer for the energy markets that we operate. In. What that means is um, we effectively have a profitable baseline consumption of electricity that's constant. However, when there is uh, demand shocks in the market, for example, in Texas, everybody turns on their air condition in the summertime because it's super hot or people die um, if, they, if they're not able to well, um, then some entity like ERCOT can call on us and in, in the course of five minutes at the uh, instant, through an instant software command at the press of a button, we can turn off you know, dozens, hundreds of megawatts instantly. So effectively, it's a big energy arbitrage play because no other real world factory or industry can do so, right? Each one of our containers is equivalent to thousands of houses in terms of power draw. Um, basically impossible <laughs> to coordinate something like that. Um, so because of that, um, it's effectively a very big moat that we can use to our advantage to quickly procure uh, extremely cheap electricity because of the combination, because of um, you know, the temperature resistance and the ability to act as an inverse battery in the markets that we operate in, um, and then scale up extremely fast in those locations. Um, and, um, yeah, at the end of the day, you know, we're in the energy business because all we want to do is, uh, optimize how many bitcoins do we make for every dollar or every, you know, Satoshi that we spend, uh, on electricity. Mm -hmm. um, what has happened more recently with the wild activity in the, the oil markets and, and uh, the U.S. energy markets as a result of the coronavirus downturn? Um, are, I mean, you're, you're essentially getting paid to mine Bitcoin at this point, are you not? Um, so it varies, right? There's different, uh, there's different uh, sort of tranches of electricity contracts and programs that we participate in, right? Some are long-term mm -hmm. agreements, some are sort of real-time markets. It's a capital allocation problem, really, right? Because you sort of have megawatts and you want to allocate them for each, uh, each uh, energy program that you participate in. Um, actually, this is very interesting for us. And the reason is actually a secondary effect. It's not really per se lower electricity prices because of an oil uh, glut or anything like that. Instead, um, for example, if you look at the Texas market or the Iroquois market, roughly a third of electricity production comes from natural gas, which is mostly a byproduct of fracking um, and oil production. Um, if you assume that effectively the U.S. or the fracking industry is acting as a swing producer for the oil market, so now effectively red prices crash um, because oil wells for fracking, you know, you can turn off instantly while all the production is shutting down. 
you're going to have an increasing distribution skew towards uh, renewable energy dependency. And what that means is because renewable energies are not constant, right? You have a lot of variance in the production of renewable energies. Um, you know, wind mostly blows strongly at night. Solar obviously only works when there's sunlight. Um, effectively, we're going to see more uh, volatility in uh, the energy supply in those markets. So what that means is um, because, like I said, layer one is a, an inverse battery, the official term is demand response management. Um, mm-hmm. Effectively, we have more holes to plug or sort of more uh, uh, amplitude to uh, smoothen out because of this increase in variance on the supply side. Um, so actually, um, this is very good for us because effectively, we're the only ones that can do it. We're constantly working on further optimizing our demand response uh, services, and uh, it significantly lowers our net effective rate on our electricity pricing altogether. Basically, our objective long-term is consequently get paid to mine Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. Always negative pricing. Um, but you're not there yet. Some contracts uh, might be negative. Some, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Some days, some days we do get paid, which is, you know, great. That's not bad. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, one, uh, thing that I'm curious about is, is all of the, uh, are all of your operations currently in the U S between Texas and, and, uh, kind of the, the mountain range corridor where, where are your, uh, facilities or, or primary customers? How do you think about the supply chain? Yep. So, uh, our, we have one mining campus thus far. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, with the capacity for hundreds of megawatts um, located in West Texas. Um, and uh, however, we have multiple offices at this point, you know, from the get go, interestingly, it's been a very international sort of distributed team. Um, mm-hmm. We have people in San Francisco, you know, obviously people in Texas, um, people in uh, Switzerland, uh, people in uh, Croatia, China, Russia, and so forth. Um, so, However, operationally, it's only Texas in terms of where does the hash rate locate that we have. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have any customers. Uh, we only have one customer, actually, which is ourselves, which is you know, a good business to be in um, because we only do proprietary mining, right? um, which actually makes the business formula pretty simple. Um, it's just on the mining level, it's only what is the market price minus our cost of production. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, our cost of production, even after the halving is significantly lower um, than any sort of reasonable market price assumptions. Um, we're in a good spot. What, what do you, let's talk about the having, uh, what, what are your um, expectations around adjustments to difficulty, you know, whether and, and how much hash power capacity will have fall off immediately post having um, and then how long it takes to get back to equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's a simple and a complicated answer. Um, let's do the simple, let's do the simple answer, one and then the complicated. <laughs> the simple answer is, I don't know. And I don't care. <laughs> and the reason being is that, you know, at this point we're only focused on ourselves, right? It's really sort of measured the inputs and the outputs will take care of themselves. Um, which I guess at this point is sort of an overused line, but really we know that, okay, the vision that we have is all you want to optimize for is can you, you know, have the highest energy efficiency, i.e., you know, electricity pricing, cooling infrastructure, really sort of putting everything net into an electricity rate because your whole CapEx um, on the hardware side is effectively commoditized. Um, you know that you're always insulated. No matter what happens to the Bitcoin price or the hash rate or the difficulty, 
um, everybody else is going to drop off before you do. If you look at the, the, if you put every single miner on a, on a, on a curve, on a distribution curve, and you sort of net everybody to what is their all in uh, dollar uh, sort of cents per kilowatt, uh, kilowatt hour rate, we always want to be in the very, very left percentile. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the ambition that we have. So, um, and we think we provably also, uh, you know, have, and, uh, because of that, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what happens. Um, you always sort of remain insulated in terms of your profitability. Um, the complicated answer is, I think at the end of the day, I don't believe in this whole like stock to flow stuff and all this like Twitter gibberish. Um, well, because you know, stock, think, to, stock to flow is basically just a reciprocal of inflation, right? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't know. It's just like, uh, you know, correlation is not causation. At the end of the day, it's just people mm-hmm. trying to find the signal and the noise. Um, and you know, sample size N equals three. Um, it's, it's not a strong signal. Um, and, um, really, I think at the end of the day, nothing's really going to happen on the price level. I think on the hash rate level, you could see a, depending on what the price does, but at the current level, probably some type of drop, Right, sort of one back of the envelope calculation, for example, Ryan is um, until April last year, 2019, the hash rate was roughly 50 exahash, 60 exahash, something like that. Um, that was basically all S9s. Um, mm-hmm. And um, after that, you had sort of the S15, the S17. If your assumption is sort of people only scale up with those because you do have some subset of people in Venezuela who actually, because of inflation rate, have free electricity, but it's on a tiny level. Well, then if it's currently at 120, you know, really the net, the Delta should be uh, 70 that remains after the halving, assuming that no S nine for the average miner is profitable after the halving. Um, I think at the current, and I have to check the numbers because frankly, I, I, I didn't, haven't checked them for some while. Um, how S nines for the typical miner would fare after the halving at the current price. So it's probably, mm-hmm a dampened number of, you know, a drop of 50 X a hash. Um, at the end of the day, I think probably maybe like uh, a fifth or a quarter will drop off, but that's really just me making numbers up. Um, mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, what we're seeing um, is what sort of incepted our vision from the start, which is people are increasingly driven towards uh, realizing that, you know, sort of chip development times are so long that effectively that's not the biggest determinant of your profitability any longer, right? It's based in energy business. It takes time to procure that. You have to find the right uh, setup to do it. You have to have the cooling infrastructure in order to take manager. You have to have the economies of scale and the actual sort of deployment scalability, right? Can you actually scale multiple megawatts per day? Um, that's a highly non-trivial problem. Um, and uh, because of that, at the end of the day, the industry is just maturing. It's going through the cycles. Um, you know, I think the industry is currently there where the oil and gas industry was probably around 1890. Um, so, you know, pretty early in its cycle. And, um, you know, uh, layer one is just one of the forcing functions for the increasing maturity of the industry. That's how we view ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm curious how you think about supply chain issues uh, when most of the ship manufacturing and foundries are based in Asia because you mentioned wanting to be all the way to the you know left side of that spectrum in terms of, of you know cost per kilowatt hour. Yeah. 
And um, that's certainly going to be true if you're doing your job right for your energy inputs, but that doesn't necessarily change this foot race and the kind of cost of delivery and, and kind of the, the benefits of being uh, more local to some of those chip foundries mm-hmm. if you're talking about supply chain disruptions and, and we continue to see some, uh, some, some negative repercussions due to the coronavirus and then maybe the second order effects of, you know, trade restrictions or, or, or you know, other conflicts that, you know, traditionally um, have been a risk with, with this administration in particular. Um, how, uh, how can you be competitive, you know, operating uh, facilities in West Texas to start? How can you uh, continue to be competitive and make sure that you get the equipment that you need to keep the all-in yep. costs um, as competitive as possible with some of the, um, you know, Chinese uh, facilities where maybe the electricity costs are slightly higher, but you know that they're going to have, you know, much, much lower equipment costs uh, on, the, uh, on the other hand. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Luca. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only time-tested crypto tax software. Luca has listened to your feedback and now lets you calculate capital gains and losses, seeing the results using three different accounting methods side-by-side, all for free. You only pay if you want to see their detailed tax reports and submit your forms using their software. Luca supports unlimited transaction downloads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps you optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refunds or minimize how much you have to pay. Luca wants to help Masari's unqualified opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code MasariTax and you'll get a discount. Much more importantly, you'll do your taxes correctly and stay out of jail. Download LucaTax at Luca with two Ks, tax.com and save money this tax season. This episode is brought to you by Bitstamp, the original crypto exchange. 2011 is a long time. This is their third Bitcoin halving, and Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors all along the way. Four million customers, including top financial institutions worldwide, use Bitstamp. Check them out because they've got some serious professional-grade trading technology, including a matching engine from NASDAQ, some of the best APIs in the industry, and TradeView, their advanced trading interface includes live charting and deep analytical tools that are available on web and mobile. Bitstamp also delivers unmatched customer service, no robots, real live people around the clock via phone, email, and social media if you have issues, but you won't. Join over 4 million traders, download the Bitstamp app from the App Store and Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to get started. That's bitstamp.net slash pro, and they're hooking you up with a discount for Masari Pro as well using promo code Bitstamp. This episode of the podcast brought to you by Crypto.com. We know times are tough. That's why Crypto.com is introducing three different measures to help its community with their new Crypto.com app and credit card. First, they're waiving the 3.5% credit card fee on all crypto purchases in the next three months. They're also offering 10% back when you use the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. And as always, you can buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app for merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more with 20% back on food and an additional 10% back on groceries. So download the Crypto.com app today. Um, I mean, I don't know if they have lower equipment costs, right? I think, yes, if you're like Bitmain or Wattsminer, you can operate, but then it's still very inefficient from an actual operating perspective, right? Because you have these small machines, you have to like pull out, put the cables in, dust them out, shake out the dust. And I mean, it's absurd, right? It's kind of cargo cold, which is kind of like how the industry has converged. Um, so just to give you an anecdote before I give you my answer, um, really one of the one of the mission statements of layer one is independence um with that you know supply chain independence and the reason for that being is 
Um, for example, Yaakov, uh, as his time at, at his time at Genesis, um, made the experience that every time the Bitcoin price spiked, so did the cost of acquisition for the miners that he wanted to purchase from third-party suppliers. Right, and at some point, those suppliers were just stopped supplying. Um, so effectively, you got screwed because if your supply chain is dependent on the Bitcoin price at some level, your margin is going to implode because that supplier is going to absorb that margin from you. Um, so actually, as of uh, as of a while ago, um, we are actually in the process of producing our own chips, um, which we'll, we'll have in hand uh, by the end of the year. Um, so that is the assumption that we will actually um, become fully independent. I mean, we're happy to work with existing third-party suppliers. You know, we have a very good relationship with, you know, if that's Bitmain or Wattsminer and so forth. I think they produce excellent products. I think uh, what they are experiencing is increasing pressure on, you know, getting rid of their machines, selling them, um, sort of the economics of increasing development cycles, right? Instead of three or six months being able to pump out new generations of chips, now it's going to take two to four years, um, maybe six years or eight years in future. Um, so the the reality is really only setting in as of now, um, obviously coupled with sort of Corona-induced uh, frictions. Um, but for us, as of next year, our intention is to be entirely independent. Uh, we have an absolutely brilliant um, semiconductor partner company called Ingenic Semiconductor. It's a publicly listed company. Mm -hmm. um, out of, uh, out of, uh, Beijing, but we produce with Samsung foundry. Um, so a South Korean company. Um, and then, uh, technically these chips don't even get produced or touch China, right? Because you, they, they get produced elsewhere at the foundry level and then assemblies again elsewhere. And then, um, really sort of tariffs and all that stuff. Uh, I mean, on paper, it all sounds terrible. Really, if you go through the roll up your sleeves, this is all manageable. Um, you know, fortunately, we don't see any any uh, real issues there. Um, what do you think the break-even point is for the top-performing miners post-having? Because we've seen numbers all over the map. CoinShares had, uh, I think, an excellent analysis in December around the uh, cost per Bitcoin being somewhere in the three thousand range, maybe for the most efficient miners. But then, you know, kind of significant diminishing returns once you, you know, start migrating more towards smaller facilities or, or hobbyists. Um, post having, assuming there was no network difficulty change uh, in the interim period, that worked out to around six to 7,000 uh, per coin, but obviously difficulties continue to spike and then we'll see some volatility, you know, in terms of uh, hash capacity around, uh, around the actual event itself. Um, does that number feel right to you? What What is the uh, kind of gross margin break even versus the the, the, the you know, net margin just to recover all that CapEx? Um, I mean, you should, you should speak with somebody who is actually doing this research for a living. Um, I mean, I can tell you that ours is significantly less than that, uh, mm -hmm. fortunately. Um, I think if I were, and the question is sort of, what do you define by the next best, um, you know, being volume adjusted at the end of the day, right? If, if sort of economies of scale is a, is a factor, um, to be honest, I don't know. Right. But the back of the envelope math you can do is, you know, even, even Blockstream in Canada or elsewhere in, in I think Georgia or Bitmain tried to, but you know, that's not operating anymore. And Rockdale is paying something like three, maybe four cents per kilowatt hour. Um, so the, uh, coin shares numbers, you know, make sense even for those institutions. Mm -hmm. Then again, um, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm not part of these organizations. I can't really speak for them, but 
I think at the end of the day, everybody's still kind of playing the game like it's 2017, which is mm -hmm. just kind of find power at scale, order a bunch of miners from Bitmain, pay a company to do the maintenance or the hosting and then try and squeeze out a margin. That's not a venture business, right? That's a real estate transaction. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think for that reason, they're going to make some money regardless after the, after the having the question is rather how much, and then secondly, how can you leverage that into building a bigger, better, or, um, you know, one that doesn't just peak on the mining level, but can leverage that into, you know, actually sort of a fully vertically integrated company, sort of like a, a standard oil and Exxon mobile of, of, of Bitcoin at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, why, uh, so you're, you're early on in your life cycle. Um, it sounds like the margins are great. It sounds like, uh, you've got your supply chain intact. Um, what, what is the next path, uh, for, for, or what is your path for growth? Do you continue to add capacity in West Texas? Do you look for, um, geographic diversification? Um, how, how do you, continue to gain market share and, uh, and scale this up as a venture business? Is it, or, or maybe it's something entirely different like joint ventures. Yeah. Um, I think West Texas is excellent for many reasons. Um, one, it's a very mature energy market, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the first oil well by like call, like Drake was made in, you know, in sort of that vicinity, um, 250 or 150 years ago, right? So basically it's sort of gone through the cycles, uh, of accumulating infrastructure, uh, for industrial purposes that also helps us, right? Mm -hmm. What I mean, even just thinking about sort of contractors, right? Labor force that's available, um, any type of resources. Um, that's sort of the first reason. Second reason is electricity prices are super interesting. Um, right. Very attractive also at scale. Um, so our ambition is certainly to scale up also with what we currently have. Um, and, um, really our ambition by the end of 2021 is to, to occupy roughly 25% of the Bitcoin hash rate. Um, and, uh, if you put that into numbers, you know, it's probably around one and a half gigawatts, um, which is certainly definitely what we can do in Texas in, in, in just that period of time. Um, in terms of the power that we have available and the opportunities that we have available to scale into that, you know, that's, that's a highly sort of like cash generative business. Um, however, um, certainly lies within the interest of the company to sort of, uh, perform geographical diversification and go elsewhere. Um, so certainly we've been engaging with other locations that have, uh, interesting power pricing and sort of other, you know, perhaps also demand response management, uh, uh, opportunities and so forth. Um, you know, those could be based in, in sort of central Asia. Um, they could be based in Europe. They could be based in the middle East. They could be based anywhere. Um, really it doesn't matter to us. I think ideologically we do want to decentralize Bitcoin mining, right? We want to bring that to the U S because it is still highly asymmetric. It definitely also increases sort of this, the pertinence of, the national security issue around energy uh, independence for the U.S. and sort of this incentive alignment that we bring to the table between um, sort of the efficient consumption of electricity and then also the improvement of development costs for energy uh, production. And um, 
for that, the company is always going to be U.S. centric, right? There's a reason we incorporate it in the U.S. There's a reason we identify ourselves as a U.S. company. There's a reason why uh, Texas was the very first step that we had. Um, so really, we're going to scale up extremely rapidly, right? We're at this position now. We effectively build these, these, uh, these uh, Bitcoin printers, if you will, right? And we can just at our factories, build these fully integrated containers that get shipped to our campus and then they're plug and play uh, ready. All you have to do is effectively energize them and they start spinning up Bitcoin, right? That's mm -hmm. the position we're in fortunately right now, which makes scaling very easy because we can scale multiple, you know, megawatts per day. Um, in, in mining, you want to minimize opportunity cost, of course, right? Because every day you don't mine is a day of revenue lost. Um, but that's sort of the horizontal vision, right? Uh, and then the vertical vision is, well, the Bitcoin you mine are the same Bitcoin you can use to settle derivatives with, the same Bitcoin you can use for lending, um, the same Bitcoin that effectively allows you to build a Bitcoin bank on top of your mining operations, right? Because in comparison to any physical commodity like oil and gas, you have refinery costs, you have transformation costs, you have distribution costs. All of that can be abstracted away with Bitcoin because it's a purely digital commodity. So why should it not be possible then if I look at sort of the increasing financial institutionalization of Bitcoin to leverage the liquidity that you produce as a miner and allow that to be a wedge into sort of the adjacent financial services markets that sit on top of the Bitcoin infrastructure protocol and uh, win those markets, right? Effectively, you can, at the end of the day, take a hit on the IRR of your mining company, uh, on your mining business, and then have that subsidize the network effects marketplace layer uh, that you can build on top of that. I think that's extremely interesting. Um, and I think that we are in the pole position to take advantage of that. I don't understand why layer one should not be in the, in the position to be able to build um, the leading, um, you know, prime brokerage, the leading training business, um, mm -hmm. the leading, uh, you know, brokerage or, or, uh, and so forth, or lending business and so forth. Um, the vision goes beyond Bitcoin mining. I think, you know, that's one of the other sort of points about other miners, which are sort of like the oil and gas wildcatters, right? That just go from well to well and try and just make a quick buck. I mm -hmm. think, right, the venture, the, the sort of the five-year, 10-year vision really is like, you can build a huge company. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not going to stop just at mining. It's going to be all the way through. If you want to take a bullish bet on Bitcoin, that's the best way to go about it. Um, mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, uh, you can you can just leverage that um, for any other type of application going forward that lives on on the protocol. It's is a point well taken. Um, I I definitely uh, agree with you that most mining companies are structured more like master limited partnerships in the oil and gas industry, yeah. where you you drill, uh, you extract, and then you move on. Right. But there's a fine, there's a terminal value to those businesses and trying to diversify the revenue streams and, and, and make them more financialized um, so that you're not as beholden to um, just that kind of picks and shovels uh, business of uh, kind of industrial mining. I think that all makes sense. One, one thing that I, I'm curious to get your take on how much risk you think there is, even if you have these broader ambitions, how much risk is there? in being tethered to West Texas if the U.S. energy sector undergoes a medium to long-term um, 
structural downtrend. Uh, and, and you start to see some real material weakness in some of your end energy suppliers. Because when, you know, when we say medium term, maybe it's a couple of years, but that's forever in Bitcoin yep. mining. <laughs> and, and like the yep. end market that we're talking about. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, as per your earlier question around geographic diversification, right? That's one of the ways, one of the means in which you can uh, mitigate that risk. Um, you know, we have offers for a bunch of different locations also around the world that also very compelling electricity pricing, but you have to start somewhere and you, you don't only want to optimize for that single variable. There's sort of multiple ones that factor into that equation. Um, you know, one thing on the Texas level is still extremely bullish about it. At the end of the day, I think, uh, uh, from a regulation perspective, it's interesting because it's the most deregulation, private company friendly uh, state in the United, uh, United States. Um, it's a very mature industry that's gone through a, like dozens of cycles like this, right? This is mm -hmm. not the first time this has happened and is not the first time that it will also, uh, you know, like a phoenix out of the ashes rise again. Mm -hmm. um, I think if we match our timeline of scaling up with what is the medium term, um, you know, in a couple of years, in a couple of years, we'll be, be past the point of total dependence on, on Texas, uh, like we are right now, mm -hmm. um, for what we have in Texas, you know, there's risk mitigation on working with excellent counterparties, locking in long-term engagements, um, and so forth. Um, but really, you know, it's within the scope of the company to diversify its, its mining operations worldwide. Um, you know, really we, we're, we want to get to where we effectively act as sort of like a, you know, uh, sort of a vacuum for, you know, sucking up the cheap electricity at scale anywhere in the world. doesn't matter where we are, right. You kind of want to check all the boxes on, you know, do we have total independence on our cooling side, on the, on the scalability side, on the deployment side, um, in order to take advantage of that. And then really it's just like a press of the button. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, at the end of the day, um, I think actually the situation is a tailwind for layer one because of the demand response management side, which only really we can do at scale. I think we have a very big first mover advantage there. Um, also something that we can develop into a business in and of itself in terms of an actual sort of energy trading business, right? Because effectively what we have is this heterogeneous sort of Bitcoin mining operation, right? That's sort of creating Bitcoin. And then you have a capital allocation in, on two on two vectors, uh, one being, okay, what do you do with the Bitcoin that you mine? Um, right. The metric being how many Bitcoin do I make for every dollar I spend on electricity? But on top of that is, okay, how much yield do I get for every Bitcoin that I've mined on the energy side? It's, it's a megawatt, a megawatt, uh, or an electricity allocation problem, right? I sort of have megawatts to allocate for all these different energy programs and trading strategies. Um, and then I want to sort of optimize for the efficient frontier of those strategies. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we'll be in a in a good position as long as we do our homework. Um, you know, so far we're trying to be conscious. Of course, right, the company is always maximally leveraged at its nascency, um, but that's going to be increasingly uh, reduced over time. Fantastic. Um, so you know, the the first uh, financial company that comes to mind in the energy markets. Uh, for <laughs> based in Texas, uh, that, that come to mind for many is uh, is Enron, right? 
And, yeah. you know, I, I, I think about, um, I, you know, you sound, uh, based on your, your uh, just academic background, like a student of history, um, what do you think some of the biggest risks are to the financialization of the Bitcoin energy markets? Uh, are there, um, you know, the, you, you make the most money in markets where it's a black box uh, and you have some type of unfair information asymmetry that you're, you're capitalizing on. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I wonder how much risk there is of, of blow up for investors that are coming into these speculative markets cold that don't really understand the, the dynamics. And maybe this is just all solved for, uh, you know, for the time being because you're a private company and that's good that you're able to you yeah. know, kind of extract these economics. Um, zooming out a bit though, you know, uh, Bitmain uh, and and several of the mining companies are trying to go public. I'm sure you're going to start to see more uh, mining uh, industrial farms go public. You already have a couple that are are you know in in Canada and Europe that are publicly traded. Where where if any um, are the big blow up risks in financialized mining in the years to come? If it's not from just mismanaged energy prices, yeah. I mean, as per Enron, right? The first, the first solution is don't commit fraud. <laughs> I think uh, you know that goes without saying. I think if I sort of, you know, sort of look back on where the industry was in 2013 when the first ASIC got introduced, right? It was incredibly amateurish and, and immature. Um, so for a lot of these companies, not even you know on purpose, but rather just because things kind of just emerged naturally and, and they just ended up being very successful and making a lot of money is, uh, you know, financial transparency, accounting, um, all of the above, which has, you know, at the end of the day also impaired some of the public offerings, right? If you look at Canaan, um, which I think is an excellent company, um, however, has done pretty poorly and also raised significantly less money than they intended to. Well, simply just because, you know, when the company started at the very beginning, um, the priority wasn't uh, accounting and so forth, right? There's sort of lessons to be drawn for us as a clean slate that we're able to avoid a lot of the issues that down the line, um, you know, undermined uh, the, the sort of public listing ambitions and so forth of, uh, you know, sort of incumbent Bitcoin mining companies. Um, I think in terms of financialization, it's a difficult question, right? Because uh, the scope of what you're addressing is so wide. Um, I think, um, at the end of the day for layer one, um, if we think about what sort of our next steps are is it's going to work also pretty closely with regulated entities, with uh, sort of institutions, with, um, you know, uh, regulators and so forth. And because of that sort of um, you have this market matchmaking mechanism of compliance that from the get go, um, we'll make sure that we're on, you know, we're on the right track. Um, I think, um, you know, what the problem is that there's always a fine line between fighting the man and then, you know, fighting for your own wallet. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, that sort of ideological principle can also make you act a little bit nefariously, um, as some other sort of exchanges or, or participants have, you know, done. Um, 
where the increasing risk is, I, I think there's actually less risk. I mean, I mean, it depends on how sort of libertarian you are in, in your approach towards the market should figure it out themselves, right? Because what you're going through is just the industry maturing. There's no reason for like retail mining to occur anymore, right? It's, it's symptomatic of the in, in, immaturity of the industry that people still pay for cloud mining, right? They got a thousand bucks for Christmas. Now they want to spend it on Bitcoin mining. They're not going to make any money for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that all this stuff, all these margins are going to be compressed and, and squeezed out over time. Um, it's just a natural process, which you can call financialization at the end of the day or institutionalization. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the, 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 the market is gonna, you know, at the end of the day, it's not as risky as people say, as long as you are relatively smart or normal about your ambitions or within sort of what you think is, is feasible. Um, for us, you know, we think there's actually an awful opportunity in, in, in playing by the book on everything regulation perspective, just because, you know, at the end of the day, there's sort of virtuous cycles that you can, uh, that you can win in terms of further financing in terms of, right? Because for example, um, you can be very efficient about financing. You know how much money makes to, it uh, takes to produce, to ship, to deploy one of these containers. You know how much money it's going to make over time. Um, and so forth. I think just lack of transparency has kind of been an issue in this, in this, in this industry, which has also due to ideological reasons. Um, I think that's kind of the biggest risk at the end of the day that you want to mitigate for. Awesome. I like to end uh, with one final question and that is there's going to be an HBO series at some point on the crypto markets. Who would you like to see cast? As Alex, <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, I really like. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. I think the boils down to sort of what actor do I think is cool, smart, and you know, maybe a little bit sort of uh, interesting. Probably Matt Damon. I think he'd be cool. Um, I think sort of a, a Jason Bourne esque, you know, approach towards uh, Bitcoin mining. You know, that'd be nice. That'd be an interesting angle. Awesome. Well, we'll keep I'll our call fingers crossed. Ask him, Lid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you got you got some work to do if you want to get an A lister like that. So, um, but but certainly well on your way. And uh, and if you can truly take over twenty uh, percent of the mining market, then um, then then obviously I think that becomes uh, a very interesting story. Um, That's a goal. Alex, thanks so much for joining and uh, appreciate you taking time with us today. Appreciate everybody for listening and watching and tuning in. Until next time, uh, this has been Unqualified Opinions. I'll see you in a couple of days. Stay safe. Be good in the meantime. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me, otherwise, I'll see you next week.